0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now we've been going through the book of uh, Genesis verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we find ourselves this morning in Genesis chapter 36. And really this is a new section because for the past few weeks and months, we've been looking at the life of Jacob, where Jacob was front and center. And now we're moving on as we move on to the life of Jacob's sons. But before we do that, in chapter 36, we start another brand new section, as if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 36, it says, these are the generations of... And if you've been with us, as we've been going through Genesis, you know how Genesis is divided. Previously, when it was originally written, there were no chapters, there were no verses. Genesis was divided according to this statement, these are the generations of, or the Toledoth in the or- original. And there are ten Toledoths, or ten these are the generations of. So you can think of this as the... the, the Chapter breaks or even passage breaks in the book of Genesis. So, this morning we find ourselves in a new section which is now going to reiterate to us or iterate to us what became of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob who rejected God. And this section actually goes all the way up to where it ends with Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And I say that because if you look at verse 2 of Genesis 37, then the new section starts again where it begins with these are the generations of Jacob. So that's the next section again. So really you could include 37.1 as part of verse chapter 36 as well. Okay, now you might be saying, yeah, but why so much of emphasis on Esau? I mean, the man who rejected God, so much emphasis on the descendants of Esau. Because if you think about it, who is Esau? Esau is the twin brother of Jacob. Now, that's, that's a very close blood relationship. When you think of the patriarchs so far, there was Abraham and Lot. That was uncle and nephew. Then there was Isaac and Ishmael. Sure, they were brothers, but there was a difference in that they had the same father, but different mother. But now you have Esau and Jacob, where you have the same mother, same father, and on top of that, they were twins. So you can't get a closer blood relationship than having twins. Jacob would become the nation of Israel and Esau would become the nation of Edom so among all the foreign nations that Israel would face Edom would especially have a special relationship with Esau why? because of the close blood relationships between these two twin brothers and so This, in one sense, this chapter provides a historical record of what happened to their blood brother and those descendants. What became of them and how did this nation of Edom come about? And then on top of that, then for Israel to then think, okay, so how am I to treat my brother nation Edom? But beyond that, there's also a theological significance. You just have to trace the the logic of the intent of the author from what we've been looking at so far. Remember when we looked in Genesis 34, we had the issue of Jacob and his family in Shechem, where his daughter Dinah was raped, and his sons then go and massacre the men in Shechem. And the intent of that passage, the the big uh, intent of it was there is danger when you go into the land of Canaan to assimilate with the people around. So be careful of that danger there. Then last week, we looked at Genesis 35 where God brought Jacob back home. And there we saw it was all about how Jacob repented and turned away, uh, you, you know, put away the idols even for his family, led his family and turned to the Lord and committed to Him. And so the intent there for the Israelites as well as for all of God's people then is to turn away from the things of the world and to turn to the Lord and be committed to Him. Now as we come to This passage in Genesis 36. This is a passage that shows how Esau was a big success. How he became very prosperous. And yet, how godless he was. And there's even a small contrast, which is where the 37.1 comes in, with Jacob. Because Esau is prospering. Mighty things are happening with Esau, the, the man who has rejected God. And where's Jacob? He's just in the land, sojourning with nothing. So there's much we can learn from this in terms of how God acts and in, her, in terms of how we are to be in this world as we see even the godless prospering. And it seems like the godly or those who love the Lord are not seeming to do well. And I trust that they encourage you this morning. So, I've divided this, I've titled this morning's sermon as The Godless Generations of Esau. And I've divided this section into two halves. First, you have Esau's family in Canaan, verses 1 through 8. And then you have Esau's family in Zaire, in verses 9 through to verse 1 of chapter 37. And it's really how Esau's family in Zaire then becomes a great nation. So let's look first of all at Esau's family in Canaan. Verse
1: 1 of uh, Genesis
0: 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Bama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibian the Hivite, and Basimeth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nabaioth. Now the text is reminding us again that Esau took godless Canaanite women as his wives. And if you remember also, aside from having Canaanite wives, if you remember we looked at this in Genesis 28 verses 9 and 10, when he saw that his Canaanite wives were causing tension in the family and that they displeased his father, what does he do? He goes and marries a closer family member. But who does he marry? The daughter of Ishmael. Again, the problem there is that Ishmael, while he was the son of Abraham, he was the son that walked away from the Lord. He was someone who wanted nothing to do with God. And so that's whom Esau marries, his daughter, another godless woman. So the text is emphasizing that who Esau marries is godless wives. Canaanite women and the daughter of Ishmael. Now, if you look at the names of Esau's three wives, they're not exactly the same as the uh, the names of these wives, are not exactly the same as those mentioned in Genesis 26 and 28. Now, you say, why is there a change? Most likely, this would have been because they changed their names. Whether after marriage or after they moved to Zaire, uh, you know, many of us, even men, some of us have our birth names and somewhere down the line, sometimes we are called by different names. In fact, Esau himself, he had two names. He had Esau and then he had Edom, remember? From Red Red, that porridge stew of his, and the fact that he was, had that ruddy complexion, that was another name that Esau had, Edom. Now as we consider, I just want to consider for a moment the names of Esau's wives, because it gives us a glimpse into the kind of man Esau is. In Genesis 26 and 34, Basimuth, that same name in Genesis 36 and verse two is called Ada. Now Basimuth means Perfume or perfumed one. And Ada means adorned one, like, like an ornament. So it is possible that this woman shifted from being somebody who was, had a lot of perfumes or maybe even in the business of perfumes to now moving on to jewelry. Then there's Judith. Means praised one. And then in Genesis 36 came to be known as a And a means tent of height, meaning tall. So it's possible this Judith person was a young teenager when she got married. And perhaps after she got married, she, you know, she grew and she, you know, she had long legs and she was just a long, tall woman. And so she was called a then you have Mahalath, which means musical one, who was the daughter of Ishmael, who came to be known as Basimuth. So maybe initially she was into musical instruments and she played fantastic music, or maybe in the business of musical instruments, and then she got into the business of perfumes, or maybe that was her thing after some time, all about smelling nice. Now, what these names suggest is that Esau married these women women for some sort of external beauty or external adornment. Why? Simply to satisfy his sensual appetites and pleasures. There was nothing more to it. A little bit of music, a little bit of perfume, somebody who's... Tall and uh, tall, and has a that sort of a figure. Esau simply married them for their for his sensual appetites and pleasures. Next, in verses four and five, it gives us the names of the sons of Esau. It says, "And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz." Basimath bore Ruel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Notice here, there's no mention that any of his wives were barren or anything like that, unlike Jacob or Isaac or Abraham's wife. Seems like, yep, he married these wives for his sensual fantasies, and they gave him sons. There were no issues whatsoever. Things are going well for Esau. So much so that in verses 6 through 8, it tells us that he moves out of the land of Canaan. Look at verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So so Esau settled in the hill country of Zaire, Esau is Edom. Now those of you who've been with us as we've gone through Genesis, what is this? Scene remind you of? Doesn't it remind you of something else? Abraham and Lot, right? Where both prospered in the land and they had so much prosperity that they finally had to part ways. And what did, east, uh, what did Lot do? He went east to Sodom. Not considering the implications of moving away from the land and moving away from the blessings of God. Now a similar thing happens between Esau and Jacob. There is so much prosperity between the two of them. Yes, by the time Jacob comes back, Esau was in Zaire. But it seems like he hadn't moved there permanently. He still had a stake back in Canaan. Now when you think of the land of Zaire, it was not like the land of Canaan. Numbers 20, 17 tells us that it had fields and vineyards. But really, the land of Zaire was mostly a region of rugged mountains with high cliffs made of red sandstone and narrow valleys. And so the people of Zaire, they would live on top of these mountains and because there were these narrow valleys, it was very difficult for the enemies to get through to them. And this became a source of pride for the Edomites, uh, pardon me, for those in Zaire. And ultimately the Lord will indict them in the book of Obadiah. And here's the thing, you might know one of the famous places of Zaire. One of the capital cities of this place, Zaire, would eventually be called Petra. That's in Jordan. Some of you may know of that you know, red sandstone kind of thing, or those of you who watched Indiana Jones, perhaps. You know, you have to go through these really narrow clefts to get to that place. That's what Zaire was. That was part of Zaire. So someone like Esau, who had so much of wealth, when you think about it strategically, it's a great place to live. So much of protection from the enemies. But if you just look down at verses 24 and 25, it also gives us a clue as to why Esau moved to Zaire. Just look down at verses 24 and 25. What you see there is his father-in-law, Ena, came from the main line of the Horites. He was a prominent man, came from the rich family of the Horites, talking about a large number of donkeys. And Ena was the one who discovered the hot springs in the wilderness there. So this would have been a really wealthy man. So when you think about it, Esau already has strong ties and motivation in Zaire. Because he's married to the daughter of Ana who's from there. And by the time Jacob gets back with his entire family and all his riches, there is no place for both Jacob and Esau to be in the same place. And so consequently, Esau packs up his entire household, and everything that he has, and peacefully moves permanently to Zaire. But here's what we need to understand. Esau is not thinking about anything spiritual. He's simply living for the temporal pleasures. He's simply living for the here and the now. Oh, this is good for some of these pleasures of mine. This is good for my wealth. This is good for my security. This is strategically good for me and good for my business. Esau is not thinking, oh yes, there's not enough room for my brother and I to stay in the same place. But you know, this is the land of promise where God had promised he would give to Abraham and his sons. So he should be thinking, so maybe I'll go to another part of the land. He should be thinking, my brother Jacob now is the heir of the Abrahamic promises. Yes, I'm not the direct heir, but if I stay close to him, all those who bless him will also be blessed. So I need to stay close to my brother Jacob. But he doesn't do that. He's not thinking that way. He simply walks away from the promised land. And you know where Zaire is in relation to Canaan? It's south-east. Yeah. In Genesis, we see this pattern, right? Everyone who moves eastward, that is the direction of those who are moving away from God. Cain moved eastward to the land of Nod. The the people who built the Tower of Babel, the beginnings of Babylon, they were people who came from Mount Ararat and came down south and to the east. People who were moving away from God. Lot moved eastward. Keturah, the other wife of Abraham, their sons moved eastward. And now here we see Esau moves eastward away from God. I want you to think with me just the the kind of person Esau is. Esau was a manly man. We saw that, right, just a few chapters back. He was a total outdozy person, a skilled hunter, skilled with his bow, he loved the thrill of the hunt and the, the meat that he could find from the wild game that he, that he killed. He lived for his sensual pleasures, the taste and the thrill and the adrenaline rush. He lived for the moment, the immediate pleasures. Then when you think of the account where he sold his birthright for a pot of red stew. Remember he had come back from a big hunt and he was hungry and he wants to immediately satisfy his hunger, his temporal appetites. There's no waiting. So what does he do? He says, brother, you can have my birthright, just give me that red stew. In fact, Genesis 25 tells us that Esau despised his birthright, meaning he didn't care about his birthright. Meaning he didn't care about God and the spiritual things that that particular birthright of the firstborn had. He didn't care about any of those things. Then we saw of his marriage to Canaanite women and and Ishmael's daughter. Again, as we saw, pointing to the fact that he was somebody who lived for his sensual pleasure rather than that prohibition not to marry any of the Canaanites doesn't regard any of that. And now finally, he moves out of the land of promise, away from the brother, the brother who is blessed by God, away from Canaan, the promised land, voluntarily, nobody's forcing him out, peacefully and moves east or southeast away from God. And again, why does he do that? Why does he move to Zaire? Because it will be good for his business. He can have more wealth, more security, more protection. It was not for some spiritual reason that he moved out and went and settled in Zaire. Esau simply did not care about God or his promises. One commentator Succinctly put it like this, Esau moves out of the land of promise and out of the record of saving history. It's a sad thing to see what Esau has done. See, Esau was so close to the promises of God, so close, and yet he rejected it. He didn't care about it. He found his pleasure and joy only in the things of this world, in the here and the now. There's an important lesson here. I mean, let me just speak to some of the young people here. I mean, do you know that it is such a grace from God that you're growing up in a Christian home? To have the, Chris, have the witness of the Christian life lived out in front of you through your parents. That is a grace from God. Yes, your parents may not be perfect. But right in front of you, you have the testimony of someone who imperfectly follows the Lord Jesus and who is being changed into the image of Jesus Christ. That is a grace from God. And for those very same parents to treat you the way they do, to love you the way they do, to care for you the way they do, to discipline you the way they do, to be exposed to the Word of God, to be taught the things of God in your home, that is a grace from God. There are so many great blessings growing up in the Christian home. And then added to that, part of that is even coming to church and singing songs and sitting under the Word where you're constantly reminded of who God is and man's natural state before God and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ and what He has done. And then on top of that, to be exposed to other Christian families who love Jesus and the witness of their lives and how they treat you. That is a grace from God, young person.
1: As you see Esau's life, let me say this to you, young person. Don't reject that
0: as you're growing up and as you leave the home? What are you thinking? I, I, you know, yeah, this is good. This has been nice. But really, when I want to get out there and live my life the way I want, without any of these restrictions, to live for the here and now, for my sensual pleasures. Sure, mom and dad, they were good. Sure, church was okay. But I want to live the life that I want. Young person, take heed as you look at the life of Esau. Or maybe you're an adult who's been coming here. And you experience something of the blessing of being with God's people. In the way they treat you, in the way they think, in the way uh, we live our
1: lives. But your heart is not really oriented to God. It's actually oriented to the things of this world.
0: Well, perhaps the coming to church on a Sunday morning is to somehow appease your guilty conscience of, or I'm doing my religious thing for the, for the week. But really, the rest of the week, you're just living for yourself, living for the here and the now. Living for your sensual pleasures.
1: Young person,
0: or even an adult friend, I want to tell you, if you're beginning to live like that, you're already in the first few footsteps of Esau. In fact, the book of Hebrews, while it talks about the how Jesus is greater than everything. There are also warning passages in the book of Hebrews about drifting away from Jesus. Instead of anchoring your hopes and your faith in the Lord Jesus and moving in that direction, just drifting away by the things of this world. In fact, just here's the warning in Hebrews 6 four to six and I pray that you would heed this. Hebrews six, four through six. For is for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Or in other words, those of you who have experienced something of the goodness of being with God's people and then you reject it and walk away. There's no other hope anywhere else difficult for you to turn back
1: let me just give a word even
0: to the parents what you see here is also as we look at the names of the children of Esau in fact not just his children, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on you know other, except for two names that have some connection to God, nothing else has any connection to God. You know, they're names of just, even some of them are names of animals, like deer and, I forget what, I think eagle and, or kite and a few others. Why is that? Again, sensual pleasures, right? Esau was a hunter. He liked his animals. And then it's other names as well, but has no connection with God. And what that says is, Esau walked away from God, but he also that also means that he didn't have any spiritual concern for his children, and that affected generations to come.
1: If you're a Christian parent, I want to ask you, brother, sister, What does
0: your children see in the home? What are you emphasizing in the home? What are you teaching your children? To simply be good and moral? What are you telling them about success? What is the ultimate success in life? To have good grades? To have great influence over others? or to do well in music or to do well in sport because you know that's that's all good and wonderful but are those ultimate values are those ultimate things that you're emphasizing or that they would do well in you know as they do that they would do well in college and they would get the best paying job and all of that is that what you're emphasizing even as we read this morning in our Bible reading. If a man has the entire world for himself and yet loses his soul, what profit is there? It means nothing. True success in life, ultimate success in life, is to instill in our children what it means to know the Lord Jesus, what it means to walk in his ways and to turn from the things of this world and to keep moving in that direction. I pray
1: that the warning of Esau's life
0: would serve us in some measure. So that's Esau's family in Canaan, and and they're now moving out of Canaan. Now let's look at Esau's family in Zaire, in verses 9 through to verse 1 of Genesis 37. It's really about Esau becoming a great nation. Verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Zaire. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Ruel, the son of Basimeth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphath were Taman, Omar, Zephul, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nehat, Zerah, Shemah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimeth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zephor, Kenas, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Misa. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimeth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibamah, the daughter of Enah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. So what you see in this section is after Esau and his family have moved to Zaire, Esau's sons and grandsons, they become chiefs of the land of Edom. Now these chiefs were nothing but heads of tribes most likely. So most of the sons and grandsons of Esau, what it's showing is, were very capable men. They became tribal leaders, having tribes of their own. So even politically, Esau's family is organizing themselves into prominent tribes in the land of Edom. With Esau's sons and grandsons as their leaders now. Now a couple of names that I want to bring to your attention. In verses 10 and 11, if you go back and look. One of the sons of Esau is Eliphaz and his son was Teman. And the people of Teman were particularly known for their wisdom. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah 49 and 7. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? And really, if you... No, the book of Job, one of Job's friends, is Eliphaz, the Temanite, Job 2, verse 11. Eliphaz was the one who had lots of worldly wisdom and a general knowledge of God, and he came from the line of Teman, from the line of Eliphaz that came from the line of Esau. So he was essentially an Edomite that came was friends with Job. Another name in the list of Esau's sons, uh, just look at verse 12. It says, Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So you see, because Amalek was the son of a concubine, and again, this was the concubine of that same Eliphaz, There was a separation from the rest of the sons because she was a secondary wife of sorts. And eventually Amalek and his descendants would totally become separate from the people of Edom and they would become an independent people of their own called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were enemies of Israel. They were the first foreign nation to attack the Israelites after they were delivered from Egypt. In fact, if you know anything about that, it's where Moses puts his hand up and Joshua goes and fights them. That's with the Amalekites. That's the first nation that attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt. And so God tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through to 19 that the Amalekites would be wiped out one day from the face of the earth. Why? Because they had no fear of God and they attacked Israel while Israel was defenseless. They were just a bunch of slaves who had just come out of Egypt. In fact, eventually Saul and David would uh, defeat the Amalekites during their time and finally during the reign of Hezekiah, even the small remnants of the Amalekites would be utterly destroyed and wiped out. So the Amalekites came through this concubine of Eliphaz, one of the sons of Esau. So now at this point, Esau's family had organized, had only organized itself into prominent tribes and his sons are becoming tribal leaders in the land of Edom. Now in verses 22, through to 30 we have the list of the chiefs of the Horites in the land of Zaire now who are Horites the Horites were the native people of the land of Zaire before Esau and his family got there they were the aboriginals of the land and after Esau and his family took over Zaire Zaire came to be known as Edom after Esau and probably even the fact that there was these red sandstone things like you see in petra so verse 20 these are the sons of zair the horite the inhabitants of the land so this would have been the ancestor the the you know the it started with mr zair the horite and the n- place was named after him and these are his sons zair's sons lotan shobal zibion and Ana. anna dishon ezer and dishan these are the chiefs of the horites the sons of zair in the land of edom these the sons of lotan were horai and Heman, and lotan's sister was timna now again timna why the specificity here saying lotan's sister was timna because timna who is the daughter of zair was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. And that's where Amalek, Amalek was born. So you're already beginning to see there's connections being built to this Horite clan. Verse 23. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shephor, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Eya, and Anah. He is Aenah who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastored the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Aenah, Dishon, and Aholibama, the daughter of Aenah. So in other words, Zahir's grandson is Aenah, the father-in-law of Esau, because he married Anah's daughter, Aholibama. So you're beginning to see there's now marital ties being formed between Esau's family and this prominent Horite family. Verse 26. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Keran. These are the sons of Ezer, Eze, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Az and Aran. And these are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibian, Ena, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan, these are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Zaire. So this is an account of the Horite chiefs in the land of Zaire. Now what happened to them? Well, Deuteronomy 2 verse 12 says that Esau and his descendants, they came into the land and disposed the Horites and destroyed them. So evidently while Esau and his descendants they destroyed a lot of the Horites there is also some intermarriage taking place where they took wives from the Horite clan and they were absorbed into the family of Esau or the Edomite family. So now you get an idea of why the Horite history has been included because some of them became part of the Edomite family. And what it's also showing is that the political power of Esau is now growing. So tribal chiefs, his sons and grandsons, now there's intermarriage. They've deposed off the Horites. There's some intermarriage and they're essentially taking over the land. Now verse 31 onwards now is the names of the kings of Edom. And, and you'll notice it's no longer the land of Zair. It's the land of Edom. Why? Because Esau's descendants have taken over and this is an account of that family now. Esau's family line now over generations have become kings of the land of Edom. Verse 31 onwards. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhabah. Bela died and Jobab, the son of Zerad of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died and Husham the, of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of his city being Avith. Hadad died and Zemla of Masreka reigned in his place. Samlah died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hedar reigned in his place, and the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehitabel, the daughter of Maitred, the daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans, and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs, Timna, Alva, Jetet, Aholibama, Elap, Pinin, Kenaz, Timan, Mibza, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to the dwelling places in the land of their possession. So Esau's descendants, Esau and his family, they moved to the land of Zer, they became tribal lords, they formed their own tribes, they intermarried, and then the rest of them they killed, and they finally possessed the land, and eventually became kings of the land of Edom. So when you look at this genealogy, it's like Esau and his family have become a prominent and prosperous family. They become a powerful nation. But we also get a hint of the spiritual state of his descendants. As we look at one of the kings mentioned, just look back at verse 39. It says, Baal Hanan. See, they had so completely rejected the Lord and turned away that they were now turning to the idols around them. Baal being one of the idols of the land. So much so that now it was becoming part of the, their own name, Baal Hanan. Now as the Israelites are listening to this genealogy, What are they to make of this? Well, one thing would be very clear. Repeatedly in this chapter, again and again it says, Esau is Edom. Esau is Edom. So this is for the Israelites to understand how the nation of Edom came from Esau and how it gained prominence. And how the land of Edom and the Edomites came about.
1: So Israel,
0: how are you then to treat this godless nation, Edom? See, because there are such close ties, Israel, such close blood ties, you are to treat Edom differently. In fact, as the Israelites were beginning to make their way to the promised land, they had to pass through the land of Edom. And then Moses sends his messengers to the Edomites saying, your brother Israel, in Numbers 20. You know, trying to be diplomatic, saying, we're brothers. Your brother Israel has suffered in, Israel, uh, in Egypt. Now let us pass through so we can go to the promised land. But at that, at that point, the Edomites were not very brotherly and wouldn't allow Israel to pass through, and the Israelites had to take a much longer route around them. And then in Deuteronomy, when the law is given, Moses, or God speaks through Moses in Deuteronomy 23, 7 and 8, and this is what it says about the Edomite. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So by the third generation, if the Edomites, because they're your brother Edom, don't abhor them, don't despise them. And if they're in your midst, by the time the third generation comes and they still want to be part of the Israelites, then they can become one of the Israelites, and be part of the worship of the Israelites. Now, as biblical history continues, the Edomites continued to be unbrotherly and difficult towards Israelites, and things just got worse between the two nations. And especially after the division of Israel into the north and south kingdom, the Edomites would wage constant wars with the southern kingdom of Judah. In fact, and they would think, oh, nothing can affect us because we've got these natural defenses, high mountains, narrow gorges, very difficult for enemies to come through. So they prided themselves and they would often be a thorn in the flesh and become an issue for the southern kingdom of Judah, very unbrotherly. In fact, by the time of when the Babylonians came and captured the southern kingdom of Judah, the Edomites laughed at them. In fact, they even, whatever remains of the loot were there, they, would, they took that for themselves. And those who tried to escape from the enemies, they even killed them. So God promises judgment on the Edomites for what they did to Israel at that time. And that's what the whole book of Obadiah is all about. So there's a lot of history that the Israelites will have with Edom. So it's important that they know who the Edomites were. They're your brother. You have to treat them in a certain way. Even though there's going to be tensions, you are to treat them in a certain way. Now in contrast to this grand genealogy of Esau, look at what verse 37 and verse 1 says about Jacob the one who has turned back to the Lord. Genesis 37 and 1. And Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. So just quick compare contrast. Esau, prominent tribes in Edom. They possessed the land. Eventually they even became kings of the land. Jacob, on the other hand, at this point, he's got 12 sons, a problem family, and will give him more trouble. He didn't have any tribes as yet, let alone any kings at this point. He didn't possess the land, he was simply a sojourner like his, like his father, like his fathers, Isaac and Abraham, he was simply an alien in the land, a foreigner in the land. So when you look at this, you know, in one sense, it seems like the one who rejected God is prospering while the one who turned to the Lord
1: is not doing so well. But I just want to think about
0: this. While Esau and his descendants were godless, they did become very prominent and prospered significantly. Why? Because this was, in a sense, part of the promise that God gave to Abraham. From you, nations and kings will come. And so God was fulfilling part of that promise in the life of Esau and his family as they're becoming a powerful nation, a prosperous nation. But Jacob, on the other hand, yes, as we've seen, is a deeply flawed man. But he's one who has turned to the Lord. What about the promises of God given to Jacob? They're yet to be fulfilled. It almost seems like the the promises are too far away right now. This has been the case, if you've seen the pattern, just in the book of Genesis in itself. If you think of Cain and Abel, you know, Cain goes off to the land of Nod. And if you remember the, the, the guys who were involved in making musical instruments and metallurgy and things like that, Tubal Cain and all of those, were Cain's sons. They were the movers and shakers of society. When you think of Isaac and Ishmael, when they parted ways, it talks about Ishmael having 12 sons and having married and things like that. At that point, Isaac was not even married. And now, here, Esau has prospered like anything, and Jacob is still a sojourner in the land with a troubled family. Is God going to work? Is his promises going to come true? You know, brother, sister, I, I, I just want to encourage you because in a lot of ways, this is how life is even now. When we look at the world around us, it seems like it's doing well. It seems like the world has it all figured out. And godlessness is prospering in every realm, in the schools, in the homes, in government places, anywhere that you can think of and maybe as you're looking at this you're feeling a bit discouraged thinking "Am am I on the losing side I mean is this all just a failure because everything on that side seems like it's so successful all these godless people they seem to be doing so well What are we to do when we think of this? Well, we recognize that as Christians, we are believers, aren't we? We walk by faith and not by sight. I mean, this is the history of God's people all throughout. In fact, if you just look at Hebrews chapter 11 and 39 and 40, that great Hall of Faith, where it talks about great men and women of faith. In 39 and 40, it says this, And all these, speaking of those who put their faith and trust in God, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So for believers in all ages, it's not in the here and the now. Our best life is not now. It's still coming. While the health, well, prosperity preachers will tell you, no, you can live your best life now, the Bible says something very contrary to that. In this life, you will have troubles. In this life, you will have heartaches. In this life, the godless will seem like they are prospering, and those who love the Lord and trust the Lord seem like they are failing, but we must recognize that we are a people who live by faith, that we are not to look at the things of this world, but to put our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ and in the things of heaven and the promises that are to come. In fact, as Paul will say, this momentary light affliction is nothing compared to the the incomparable glory that is going to come when Jesus returns. That's our hope. And so we live as as believers throughout history has lived by faith and hope in the Lord and in what he has promised. This is how God always works. But let me also tell you just how this is also in a significant way played out in history. You know, many many years later after this account of Esau and Jacob. As we come to the New Testament, we meet a person named Herod, Herod the Great, the Idumean. You know the who the Idumeans are? It's another name for the Edomites. Or, in other words, Herod was from the line of Esau. And Herod was Mr. Great. He had all the wealth in the world, he was the king of the land, he was a power hungry,
1: cruel dictator.
0: And he even slaughtered all the infants in Bethlehem to kill word about this king of the Jews that was going to come. And yet, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings mightily worked. And the second person of who he is came down in the form of a man as Jesus Christ. He was the son of Jacob. And as he lived on this earth, he didn't seem like much. He was despised by man. He seemed like an ordinary person.
1: And then the the world around
0: despised him and Crucified him on the cross. As the son of Esau and the son of Jacob faced each other at that time, it seemed like the son of Esau was winning. Here's the son of Jacob, the Messiah, the promised one, dying on the cross. He seems to be losing. And yet, isn't it God's way? It is exactly through the death of Jesus Christ that He won, that He defeated sin and death and the ruler of this world, Satan. The seed of the serpent seemed like it's winning, but God will always have the last word and He will always. Keep his promises. And it is precisely because Jesus did that, you and I, who are Christians, are sitting here 2,000 years after that, still trusting in him and hoping in him, even when the world around us seems like it's winning the godless world. That's the work of God. Friend of you are here today. And you do not know the Lord Jesus. And you're thinking, oh, success is, or ultimate success is gaining prominence and gaining fame. And being someone of significance and importance in this world. Friend, let me tell you, if you look at the life of Esau, it is also meant to be a warning. Don't go the way of Esau. Yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ that, uh, that God sent his son 2,000 years ago and he came into this world to die for sinful people like you and me and all those who trust in him will be saved. That might seem foolishness to you. But let me tell you, friend, that is how God works. The foolishness of man is still nothing, or the foolishness of God is still nothing compared to the greatest Einsteins of this world. If you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus or trust in Jesus, please come and talk to me or Donnie or one of the members of our church and we'd love to talk to you about him. For those of us who are believers, believers, Well, my encouragement today to you is, as you see the seed of the serpent prospering, as you see ungodliness prospering, may we take heed from this passage, even as the Israelites were meant to take encouragement, to know that God will fulfill his promises in his time. Even though the path of Satan, even though the path of the world, the broad path is the easy path, don't go down that path. Stay on this path. Trust the Lord, being confident that He will fulfill His promises and wait on Him as you live faithfully for Him and His glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word that
1: is truth, that encourages us, that rebukes
0: us, that gives us hope we thank you even this day as you have reminded us from looking at the generations of esau the godless line of esau even as they've materially prospered and become famous and the movers and shakers of this world yet what a tragedy may we never be tempted by the broad way the easy way by the the way of the lion of the serpent.
1: But may we be
0: faithful to what you have revealed to us. And may we cling on to you by your grace and wait on you to fulfill your promises, confident that you will fulfill your promises and living as good witnesses of who you are in this world. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would work in and through us through what we've heard this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.